This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. I would say sort of the malintent or the bad intent of of kind of hard partisan gerrymandering. It's always been present in American politics. It's just that it might be more effective now for a variety of reasons. Some cite technology as a way of as as a um, as part of that, but it's also that uh, you know we're we're in an era where um, incumbents were maybe a little bit had had a little bit easier time sort of surviving. Uh, unfavorable lines are getting crossover support and um, that sort of crossover support while it still exists it's just not as potent as it as it used to be so these redistricting questions which have always been important um arguably take on a, a sort of greater importance because the power of gerrymandering is um is pretty significant welcome to politics is everything the podcast of the center for politics at the university of virginia i'm kara ong and i'm kyle condick in this episode we are discussing kyle's new piece on the crystal ball that has the initial house ratings for 2024 kyle can you start with just a quick overview of why control of the house of representatives begins as a toss-up yeah so you know of course the, the republicans did win the majority last time but it's a very small majority 222 to 213 um which is just the, the mere opposite of the small majority the democrats won in 2020 and um you know w- there is some you know historical kind of trivia in that the midterm election is very often the sort of engine of change in house elections and so 10 of the last 12 times going back to 1900 that the house actually changed parties it happened in the midterm year uh, the last time the house changed party control in a presidential year was 1952 when Dwight Eisenhower got elected um, the Republicans narrowly won the House and the Senate um, that year too, but they immediately lost them in 1954. Uh, the Democrats would go on to hold the House majority for um, an uninterrupted string um, until um, from from uh, the early 50s all the way through the 1994 election. Um, the Senate uh, didn't change hands change hands again until 1980, and so um, that was a little bit of a Republican resurgence in in, in Congress that sort of quickly washed away, but. Um, but so, you know, the, the, the presidential is usually is maybe a little bit more stable in the House and you don't generally see party changes. But it's also kind of unusual for a party to win such a small majority in a midterm. Uh, you know, if you go through history, you know, particularly since since World War Two, um, you know, usually the, the 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 winning party in the midterm gets, you know, well, two, 230 seats or, or or north of that. You know, this time the Republicans are only at 222. And, um, you know, as you go through the, the list of targets, there are, you know, credible targets for both sides. Um, I've got r- relatively equal numbers of uh, competitive seats, uh, you know, those rated toss-ups on toss-ups and leaners uh, on either side. And so I think it's just reasonable to just look at the, the house as a, as a toss-up to start. I guess you, if you wanted to, you know, kind of see whether one side is favored or not, I guess maybe you might put a pinky on the scale for the Republicans. They do already have the majority, um, which is sort of a, kind of an obvious thing to say, but um, you'd rather have, have more seats to start with than fewer. But uh, it's so tenuous that I would just say it's a, it's a toss up overall. So we're going to get into some of the the key races where uh, that, that might be targets. Um, one of the things that you noted in your piece was uh, comparing 1952, um, you know, that followed the 1950 census and California and New York um, uh, engaged in uh, what David Mayhew described as ingenious cartographic efforts in redistricting. Um, both those states loom large again, but also redistricting is playing an important role this time around. 
I wonder if you can talk about some of those competitive seats and the role that redistricting and gerrymandering might play. Yeah, so so there really are four states that really loom large to start here, um, and for different reasons: California, New York, um, big blue states where Democrats hold you know clear majority of the of the House seats in those states. But um, Republicans have made key gains in both California and New York in both the 2020 and 2022 elections, and. They hold a number of seats that that voted Democratic for president in in 2020 in both states, and so those are pretty clear places where um, the Democrats are going to be trying to, uh, uh, to you know to focus their energies. A House Majority Pack, which is one of the big outside spending groups on the Democratic side, um, they just announced they're creating a 45 million dollar fund just for New York, um, which just shows how important um, uh, that you know that that state is to the Democrats' path to retaking the majority. The flip side is that. In Ohio and North Carolina, um, it, both of those states are going to have new congressional district maps for various um, legal reasons. And also the state Supreme Courts in both of those states sort of uh, constrained Repu- Republican redistricting um, ambitions um, to, 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 to certain degrees um, in both states. And those states basically got more or those state Supreme Courts basically got more conservative in the last election and um, are likely to be less of a roadblock to Republican gerrymandering. Now, there are a lot of moving pieces, particularly in Ohio, like we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about the strange redistricting machinations and system in Ohio. But I think we could save that for a later date when we actually figure out what's what's going on there. But what what I ended up doing in the ratings was that there are up to four uh, Democratic held seats in North Carolina that could be endangered by redistricting by Republicans. There are also up to three seats in Ohio that could be endangered by uh, by Ohio Republicans. And so I just started all of them as toss ups. And then, you know, obviously, I'll just have to move them when we get the new maps. Um, some of them are probably going to be particularly North Carolina going to be pretty easy Republican pickups. Some of them may remain as true toss ups. Some of them might even get more Democratic and go off the board that way. We just don't really know exactly how things are going to shake out. Um, but I, I wanted to do that in the ratings to reflect that um, the maps are going to change, at least in those two states. And there's Democratic exposure in both those states. It's just it's not cl- quite clear how significant it, it's going to be. So, you know, if you think about it, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats have to win uh, uh, five net seats uh, to win the majority. The actual number is probably a little bit higher than that because of the um, what we're sort of anticipating from redistricting. But again, it's 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 pretty unclear. There also are a bunch a bunch of other unresolved redistricting um, matters and lawsuits in other states. Um, but aside from Ohio and North Carolina, it's much less clear as to whether those states, be it like Alabama or South Carolina, um, will actually have new maps next year, whereas we, we have a pretty good sense as to that Ohio and North Carolina will. So we took that into account in the ratings for Ohio and North Carolina, but we didn't really do any projection on redistricting changes in other states um, because it's, it was less clear to us that that would actually happen, but but it still could. Um, I, I quoted or I, I cited this this piece uh, in, in, in Crystal Ball today, but a few weeks ago, Ron Brownstein of CNN did a great uh, sort of overview of all the kind of moving pieces legally in some of these st- states. Um, so if you want to read about that, um, check out that article. Again, I didn't really want to dwell too much on that in, in, in this piece today. Um, but there are there are a lot of question marks about redistricting. It's just that um, Ohio, North Carolina sort of stand out as being, you know, very likely to have new maps. We will drop a link to Ron Brownstein's piece, which also cites you on multiple occasions um, in, in his article. Um, but two things to uh, point out from that. Um, 
from that article very quickly is just um, the historic nature by which we have not seen this many House seats that remain in flux this long after the decennial redrawing of congressional districts that follows the census. Um, and that, you know, as you point out, what's at stake is more than enough to shift the balance of power in the House. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it is worth noting, I, I mean, I, that is a totally a fair observation that there are sort of an unusual number of sort of unresolved redistricting matters um, in, you know, in this year, in this cycle, which is not actually a, a redistricting cycle. But if you go back through, you know, history, um, our sort of modern redistricting system in which basically every state redraws at least once every 10 years. Um, it goes back to the the one person, one vote Supreme Court decisions from the early 1960s that sort of normalized the redistricting process. Um, but if you go back to the, the 60s until now, it's pretty common for there to be at least one map that changes every cycle. I mean, there are some cycles where um, where the maps are stable. The, the late 70s were, were like that. Um, uh, the late 2000s were also like that. But, you know, if you, if you go back recently, um, the North Carolina map changed in, uh, in advance of the 2020 election, Pennsylvania in 2018, um, Virginia, Florida, and North Carolina in 2016. Um, 2014, there weren't any changes, I don't think. Um, but, you know, 2012 was a redistricting year. So, so you know, there's, there, there are often there's often kind of irregular redistricting activity. A lot of that is initiated by the courts, uh, although um, some states at least um, allow there to be a, 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 you know redistricting multiple times throughout the decade. There's no federal prohibition on um, on on irregular redistricting. So hypothetically, if there's no if there's not interpreted to be any state um, prohibitions on redistricting, a state could draw new congressional maps every cycle if it wanted to. Again, so long as it wasn't prohibited by state law. Um, a good example, sort of most famous recent example of that is. Um, when Texas Republicans finally took total control of Texas following the t- 2002 elections, they drew uh, a, 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 their own gerrymander of Texas. The previous map was sort of like a court-imposed version of a previous Democratic gerrymander, um, and that was the sort of famous uh, Tom DeLay redistricting. It's kind of remembered as sort of this famously aggressive um, redistricting push, and so that happened in, in advance of the 2004 cycle. Uh, Colorado Republicans tried to do the same thing around that time, um, but they were blocked by state law. Texas, you know, Texas didn't, didn't block it. So um, that's also something to keep in mind. But in recent years, when we've had a, um, you know, new maps it, uh, come after the j- usual redistricting year, uh, it's usually because a court has ordered it, um, be it a state court or a federal court or, or, or what have you. Um, but of course, the, the U.S. Supreme Court um, does not impose any restrictions on partisan gerrymandering, um, which the you know which the court set you know de- de- declined to impose any standards in uh, in in 2019. Previous previous to uh, um, you know that decision, um, the, the Supreme Court still had not really imposed practical um, constraints on partisan redistricting. Some states have decided to do that. There's also a, um, a, a U.S. Supreme Court case being decided later this year that has to do with. Um, state court interventions into redistricting. So those may be constrained in certain ways. So, you know, this is a long way of saying there are a lot of moving pieces with redistricting and sort of the future of kind of constraints on, um, on, on, on gerrymandering. But, you know, as you just look at the house map for 2024, um, Ohio, North Carolina are going to change quite possibly other states might change too. Broadly speaking, what's 
seems to be problematic is the increasing nature of partisanship playing into maps and moving away from fairness. And I think, you know, the the case you mentioned is Moore v. Harper um, that could use the independent state legislature doctrine to um, limit states from overturning state legislature's decisions, um, including on congressional maps, so um, as well as other things um, regarding election administration. Um, but that could potentially create, you know, create this greater greater potential for swings depending on who's in power in state legislatures and giving them more power. Um, and then there's also the Merrill versus Milligan case that they'll also be deciding on um, uh, with regards to the Republican drawn map in Alabama. And so that can also, you know, that, that could also potentially shape moving into 2024, um, the role of state legislatures. You know, what, one point I would I would just add on here is that you know, I think that gerrymandering has become more effective lately, in part because partisanship has become so predictable and, and incumbency maybe is not as meaningful as it used to be. So, like, you can find examples of, you know, gerrymanders that didn't work. Um, like there was one in, in Indiana in the 80s. Uh, there was one in New York State in the 70s. Um, in which the the party in power were sort of bragging about their ability to eliminate you know several democratic seats and um, it, you know and, and, it, and it didn't work um, and then you know there were other you know effective gerrymanders back then there's a famous democratic gerrymander of California in the 80s uh, democratic gerrymander of Texas in the 90s um, but I think that it you know the the, the so the the intent of sort of I would say sort of the malintent or the bad intent of of kind of hard partisan gerrymandering, it's always been present in American politics. It's just that it might be more effective now for a variety of reasons. Some cite technology as a way of, as, as a, um, as part of that, but it's also that, uh, you know, we're, we're in an era where, um, incumbents were maybe a little bit, had, had a little bit easier time sort of surviving, uh, unfavorable lines and getting crossover support. And, um, that sort of crossover support while it still exists, it's just not as potent as it, as it used to be. So these redistricting questions, which have always been important, um, arguably take on a, a sort of greater importance because the, the power of gerrymandering is um, is pretty significant. I you know I looked at public opinion on this, and you know it, this is also an area redistricting and gerrymandering where that has been pretty isolated from public opinion. Not very many people follow it um, in the American public, um, uh, though that is changing slightly as it's becoming more relevant uh, with. Democrats having a more negative view of the process compared with Republicans, according to some Pew findings. Uh, you know, there's also been some good research by Devin McCarthy, and I'll drop a link to this research that a majority of people actually prefer a nonpartisan map, but there isn't that much influence from public opinion yet in changing this process. Yeah, some, you know, there, there has been a sort of growth in um, nonpartisan or bipartisan redistricting systems to, you know, kind of debatable effect. I mean, um, you know, Virginia has a new system that the, the legislature, you know, put on the ballot and, and voters overwhelmingly approved, but the system basically didn't work. The, the commission never prov- produced the maps. And so um, the Virginia Supreme Court um, appointed, you know, special masters to draw the map. And I think the map is, is is basically fair there, you know there certainly there are quibbles with it but the, you know the the outcome i don't think was that bad but the process was was not was not great um colorado michigan are also states that have those those new processes now and i'd say they're probably a little bit more successful um in those states in the 2020 redistricting cycle but um 
you know, in states where you can actually get these sorts of uh, ballot issues, you know, in front of voters, particularly if you can do it um, without having to consult the state legislature or the, or the governor, um, you know, th- these these things do sometimes end up end up passing. It's just that in a lot of states, um, they don't have kind of direct democracy in that kind of way. Um, uh, so the uh, uh, you know it, it can be harder to to sort of go around the legislature on on. Uh, you know, on that sort of thing. I mean, this is also a topic that comes up with, uh, you know, abortion ballot issues. And I don't necessarily want to get into that issue today. Um, but, you know, some states it's, it's relatively easy or it is, it, it's, it, it's allowable to, um, for, you know, outside groups and voters to put those things on the ballot in other states, you really can't do it without, uh, um, maybe at all, or, or without the permission of the legislature effectively. So I want to raise a question that a reader listener brought up, which is why Mike Garcia in Southern California was rated as a toss up. And you actually address this in the piece um, in your article. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, Mike Garcia and the potential for a competitor in California. Uh, Mike Garcia is one of the Republicans who occupies a, a fairly Democratic leaning district, at least at the presidential level. Um, Joe Biden won it by, I think, about 12, 13 points. Uh, Garcia won a- after the resignation of Katie Hill back in, uh, uh, in uh, I think, it was late 2019, early 2020. Um, and uh, three straight times in a special election, then 2020 and 2022, Garcia faced Christy Smith, a former state assemblywoman who basically is is not particularly well respected as a candidate. Garcia won all three times. Um, there's a new person who got in, uh, a guy named George Whitesides, who is a former aerospace. Uh, um, he was at Virgin Galactic, a former aerospace executive. Uh, Democrats are kind of excited about his candidacy. So that was one that I sort of highlighted. And um, that's a, you know, that's a toss up. There are a couple other seats in California um, that are Republican held that, that are also toss ups. And then there's an open seat out there. Uh, Katie Porter is running for U.S. Senate. Um, leaving her uh, district behind, it le- it's a it's Democratic leaning district. Uh, Biden won it by eleven points, but for a variety of reasons addressed in the piece, um, I think it starts as a toss up. So um, a lot of a lot of action out in California. You know, again, even though it's an overwhelmingly Democratic state, um, there are still you know a number of competitive districts out there. So I wonder if you can talk about what competition looks like in the likely Democratic column. Uh, yeah, so there are a number of seats that I've parked in Likely Democratic that actually were highly competitive in 2022. So uh, a, a number of states, a number of seats in Nevada, Oregon, um, South Texas, uh, and then both seats in New Hampshire. And, you know, th- these seats are all a little bit more, at least a little bit more Democratic at the presidential level um, than the nation as a whole is. Uh, and I think Republicans had high hopes of flipping more of these seats in, in 2022 than, than they actually did. Uh, and so, you know, I'm sort of giving the Democrats a benefit of the doubt to start starting them all as likely Democratic, um, you know, to the extent that Republicans put some of these seats actually in play uh, might tell us something about the sort of direction as to, um, you know, as, as to where the cycle might be headed. And finally, what about the lean column? Uh, you have given a, you gave the benefit of the doubt to a handful of incumbents. Um, but I wonder, you know, what, what, what does competition look like there? Yeah, so the, you know they're they're roughly even numbers of Republicans and Democrats in the in the leans column, which is you know the the column that's that's a little bit less competitive than toss up, but we still regard as sort of the seats really in play. Um, there are forty four seats total in the toss up and leans columns. That's about ten percent of the membership of the House, which sort of tells you something about um, you know how many seats are sort of inherently competitive in the House. It's it's not that big of a number. Um, 
And, you know, a number of folks to sort of look at on, on both sides uh, of, of the aisle here, you know, Don Bacon in Nebraska, Tom Kane in, in New Jersey, they both have uh, Biden one districts that are arguably trending Democratic. I think they're pretty, you know, they're, they're pretty respected Republican office holders. So we'll see what sort of distance they can create between themselves and the presidential nominees. Those are those are ones I sort of debated going toss up or lean R, but I, I gave them benefit of the doubt. Juan Siscomani in Arizona 6 is another example. He's a first term member. Um, he's actually got some attention uh, early on here. He gave the uh, um, the Spanish speaking uh, uh, response to the uh, State of the Union on the Republican side. Uh, and then on the Democratic side, um, Gabe Vasquez in New Mexico, too. Uh, Dira Caraveo in uh, Colorado, eight. Uh, two Democrats who very narrowly won in 2022, but now that they're actually in office in a presidential year in, in seats that Biden is likely to win or the Democrat nominee is likely to win, um, they get they get a little bit of an edge to start, um, too. But all the races I talked about, you could perhaps categorize as toss ups and maybe we will later in the cycle. Um, but but uh, as of now, we give them a, a little bit of, a, of an edge to, to, to start with. At the risk of sounding like Groundhog Day <laughs> uh, from previous episodes, uh, you do note in the article that there is a, a high correlation between presidential and, and House resu- results that has grown. Um, we've, we talked about that in the case of the Senate uh, last week, I believe. Um, uh, but I wonder, you know, to what extent there's new rumblings this week that Biden may actually not seek to run again. Um, you know, I wonder, again, to what extent will the presidential nominees matter? I think they'll matter a great deal in the direction of the presidential race will matter a great deal. But even though the the presidential and House results have gotten more greatly correlated over time, there are going to be differences. And um, I think for, you know, uh, particularly if Democrats win the White House, um, you know, Republicans are defending 18 Biden one districts. Democrats are defending only five Trump one districts. You know, the Republicans are going to have to create some distance in some of these districts, particularly the ones in New York and California, um, between themselves and whoever the Republican nominee is. But we have seen there, there you know, some of these members be able to do it in, in previous cycles. Um, you know, like a Brian Fitzpatrick in uh, in Pennsylvania and. Uh, David Valadeo out in California and, and, and some other folks. So, um, you know, while there 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 isn't as much of a difference between the House and the presidential results as there used to be, there are still differences, and those differences may very well be the key to um, to, to, to one of the you know, to either side winning, winning the House next year. Well, Kyle, thank you so much as always. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics Is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at center number four politics. Until next time.